Hi, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys in Search of an Argument. This is Peggy Bennett recording live from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I'm here as always with Jim, who is also in Philadelphia. Hi, Jim. Hi, Peg. And John in Shanghai. Hi, John. (laughs) Hi, Peg. How are you? (laughs) And then I'm great. And then we have a very special guest today. Her name is Nikki, and she is also here live in Philadelphia. Nikki is an old friend of mine from when I used to live in Philadelphia. We became fast friends. Both Define old. I met Nikki in 1999. So what's that? Almost 20 years. 19 years. years. That's hard to believe. Hi, Nikki. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Peg. Thanks for having me. I'm here in Philadelphia, and I haven't even seen you yet. That's not right. I know. It's shameful. (laughs) So sorry about that today. What? How did that happen? Oh, we'll go. Yeah. Mm -mm. My host last night. Everybody. He wasn't having it. Everybody else wanted a piece of Peggy's time. Yes. Peggy's time is valuable. Before we get started, uh, there's a, a few things I need to say for those who listened to the last podcast. One is... Today, I'm in a much more comfortable chair because I'm in a hotel room and the chair is better. So that's important. Two is, those of you who thought the last podcast was very short, the reason it was so short is because after 18 minutes, my friend Beth Shannon and Peggy and John couldn't stand talking to me anymore for after 18 minutes. <laughs> so this may happen again today. We can't be sure. I want to make one more point, which is that the other important thing in the last podcast, which may be related to the second point, is that Peg expressed a great desire to have a podcast episode in which I make no references to any film whatsoever. I did and not say we, that. We are. Yes, you did, actually. I did not you express said, a desire. Can I we said, ever can have we a have podcast one? without bringing up a film? Is exactly Jim, that's what you different said. than expressing a desire for you not to. It's a, it a simple I think inquiry. Is how that would be interpreted by any English language speaker, Peg. But in any event, Jim is particularly sensitive we are going to have such a podcast. But today will not be that podcast, because today, in fact, we're talking about a particular film. Right, Peg? Yes, we are. And film in general. No, we're not talking about film in general. We're talking about a particular film. Oh, we're not. Okay, good. Well, then we're I'm talking about James Baldwin and the fantastic documentary about him called I Am Not Your Negro. And yes, and Nikki is also a um, documentarian. Documentarian, is that what you say? A documentary filmmaker. Documentary. Documentrice. Document. <laughs> Documentrex. <laughs> I just made up a word. Nikki has told us that this is one of her favorite authors and movies. She's seen it multiple times. So we thought it would be nice to discuss this with her. So there you go. Discuss. Discuss amongst yourselves. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. Well, it's it's hard to, it's hard to talk about this documentary without talking about all the movies in it. I mean, it's loaded with stuff. I know oh, there's sure. a ton of movies. Obviously, in it. yes. A single John, documentary. John, you're allowed to talk about anything that pertains to James Baldwin. Or okay, I just want to make sure the rules. Well, I don't break the are rules. Are there rules, John? You break the rules every Jim time makes you rules. wake up in the day. No, John. Okay, John, you should talk about whatever you want and. I'm going to bear this in mind the next time you say, we should have an outline for the episode of the podcast, by the way. Go ahead. Nikki, what did you think of the documentary? 
Oh, no, no, no. I've seen the documentary multiple times. My question is, how many times have you guys seen it? Okay, so I'll be honest. I finished it five minutes ago, and I am so on a high from seeing it. I have so much I want to ask about and talk about that. Um, I'm completely jacked up and excited about it, so I loved it, and I've seen it once. Nikki, I saw it twice. I saw it in the theater when it came out, I, I want to say end of 2016, beginning of 2017. I'm not sure the exact date. I saw it in the theater, and then I did rewatch it again uh, in advance of the podcast just to refresh my memory. But I, I, I think it's it's really one of the best documentaries, certainly of recent time. Although there have been a number of good ones, uh, the uh, the the very lengthy O.J. Simpson one oh, comes to yeah. mind, of course. But um, yeah. but I the the thing that's fascinating is essentially every word spoken in this documentary is either a clip of James Baldwin himself speaking or it's his words that he wrote uh, so that rather than have the usual sort of and again sometimes I'm not saying this is necessarily bad but it's certainly refreshingly different not to have the sort of you know talking head comment thing uh, interspliced with clips but rather have the clips interspliced with Baldwin's own words. Uh, as read by well, Sam it raises Roche. the question whether it is in fact a documentary or some kind of pastiche. It is a documentary. I don't know what a documentary can be a pastiche, John. The, 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 those are not opposites. I suppose it really like it doesn't leave any room for error as far as like directorial like taking, you know, or trying to sway yeah. the viewer's opinion one way or the other. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. these are Baldwin's words. There's no contest about that. This is what he right. said. This is what he was writing about. And when you have it juxtaposed to current day America, it's like, well, has anything really changed? Yes. Like the footage going from Watts to Ferguson to... To Trump. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, has anything really changed? And it, you know, for me, the first time I watched it, it was really kind of disenchanting because I was like, well, that fucking sucks. Here we are. All the crap I've been talking about that... You know, everyone feels like, you know, from the South, like as a black woman, oh, you're just being this and you're being too sensitive and you're being too that. I'm like, mm, no. <laughs> and it's not that anything's changed. It's just now that with social media and everyone has an iPhone or a Samsung or anything, we just see it and we're inundated with it on the media. And Baldwin is just amazing. So I don't know that much about Baldwin. I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I've, re I've read a little Baldwin. Have you but not I, read any of his I've, books? I have, but I haven't put it together into, I guess, I don't, I, you know, somehow he fit into the literature box, not the activism box. I know that's terrible, but like in my head, I didn't merge it all until I saw this. Giovanni's room? What? I used to sneak and read Giovanni's room when I was a kid. My mom had I it never read Giovanni's room. I never, never read Giovanni's crazy. room. No, I haven't either. Never read and it. I haven't even heard of it to make it even worse. Why did you have to sneak it? Well, it's about uh, about a gay man, gay book. It's very risque. Oh, it's not even really, but you know, for a, a nine year old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's 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 ahead of its time in the sense that. That in the 50s and 60s, at least the early 60s, writing openly about a gay relationship or gay coupling or whatever you want to call it was really pushing the outer edge of the envelope for for accept you know what was accepted as literature. So in that sense, it, it's also you know this is a topic we've discussed before, which is 
you know, to the extent that that those uh, sorts of relationships are less forbidden or less widely looked down upon today, it you know it's a different context, right? I mean, the context of what it was like to be gay in the fifties and sixties have to be a lot different than what it's like to be gay today. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. So he came he came back from Paris. I mean that that's what I guess I what I left it wondering. Like I I wanted to go back and watch it a second time to see if the timeline is it chronological or do they bounce around? No, it's chronological. So that's actually the way it happened. When you say what the way what happened the, is the, his life. Well, he he went to Paris uh, after World War II, if I understand correctly, and then came back in the mid fifties as the civil rights protest area was getting underway. And then, they I don't think they say this, but he ended up going back overseas in the yes. late 60s and spent basically spent the rest of his life overseas as a self-exile. In France. In I think predominantly in France, I'm, or I believe. Yeah. I remember it was Europe. Yeah, okay. Because I picture, it's funny, I picture him in France. That's where it's- No, I, I believe I, he that's did why spend, it was I think, so I think France is correct, at least predominantly. When did he die? I want to say in the 1980s, maybe, 1985 or something like that. I don't know. Nikki, do you know? Do you know? 87. 87, okay. In France. And this book was only 30, he only got 30 pages into it? Yeah. And then, why? Because he died? No, because he didn't die until the 80s. Okay. I think he probably only got 30 pages into it just because he was like, do you really want to keep revisiting, revisiting the death of three of your close friends? Okay, so he stopped writing it. He may have also had some other... He, I think his health may have been in decline uh, earlier, and uh, he his writing was not as he's certainly not as prolific writer at toward the end. Uh, he did produce some shorter pieces, but yeah, I mean, who knows why he didn't finish it? So the texts that they were putting on the screen, as if they were typed by a typewriter, were from that thirty-page excerpt, or were those from was those from actual letters? or other texts that were produced at some point. It's my understanding that all the text is from the letters that he was writing from to his editor. Okay. Yeah, it's incredibly powerful. So the other the other so I, I Nikki, I guess I'd like to know like what how does that how does this connect I mean besides okay, so the subject matter clearly is the big thing. Is there any I mean was there anything artistically that other otherwise that really stuck out for you? Um just how they used you know, what I just call like the propaganda footage as far as like Uncle Tom's cabin and showing how important it is to have representations of self so that you can be affirmed in who you are versus how other people see you. Because for the longest time, I didn't see me when I looked on television or I looked in film or even in, you know, in some of the books that I read. And I just think about like the differences between when I was growing up Versus what my daughters are going to see when they're growing up. They're not going to have to deal with that like I did. Right. So that, Nikki, to go back to the question you raised. So that is at least one way in which, and again, not to say that we should all just uh, declare victory and go home. But that's at least one way in which there has been progress in terms of uh, uh, our understanding of race. Is that there is more visibility and and to some extent more positive visibility 
of people of color on television and in film. It's not certainly where it probably ought to be, but it's certainly better than even it was during the 1960s. Ish, because it depends on who's allowed to tell the stories and through what lenses they're being told. So until recently, the majority of the stories in, in representation and how they're being told were being told through white lenses. And so it was what white America thought and how black America was portrayed. So even currently, the majority of the films that were quote unquote black films were directed and written by white folks. They alluded to that in the film at one point that he was a, I don't know, I mean, a little bit like I think of Sidney Poitier, like, you know, the the kind of the, the mainstream white cultures, black man. Was he, was did he, and they alluded to something along those lines that he said or he, he that he wrote that he was concerned about it, how he was. So I'm curious how I don't I never thought that about him. Oh, neither did I. OK, so this is just a reflection from him. I think it's what they wanted him to be. He is clearly was a very, very literate person. And the perception was, I think, at the time was that that made him very special as a person of color to be that literate. And so uh, in much, I think his concern was in the similar way that Sidney Poitier essentially became the representation of what we want a black person to be on film. He was, he was frequently put into these roles where he was, you know, essentially supposed to be this perfect representative of his race that Baldwin was concerned that in a literary sense, he would be put into that same pigeonhole. When you get into the whole like, oh, you're so articulate, you're so eloquent, you're so this, like the only thing I hear is for a black person. Right. No, no, I think that's, I think that's of fair. Course. I'm sure, I'm sure that's how the, I'm sure that's what the perception was. Oh my God, he's an ama- he's black, but he talks like he's really smart, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure that's what it was. And I think that's part of what he was this is my interpretation, obviously. I think that was part of his concern is he was being put into the, the you know, let's use him as the example of something which, you know, he, for obvious reasons, wanted to resist being put into that, you know, being held up as some kind of exemplar. Which know? is crazy because if anyone ever listens to anything that he says, you can see that he's it's obvious. Well, it's an exam you know, an example of they weren't really hearing the content of what he was talking about. Yeah. But, um but I mean he did it was true that for example, as you can see from the, the film, unusually he was the kind of person who would appear on television and there weren't except for people who were the activists, you know, the Martin Luther King, uh Martin Luther King himself and other people who were actually more note for a, for a black writer, it was unusual, and he may have been really the only one who you would expect to see on network television or, you know, the Dick Cavett show or one of those shows. But he wasn't the only one around. Like, there's Langston Hughes. Certainly, and, he wasn't yeah. the only one around, but he was the one you would see on television, maybe. And I, I'm, I'm, I may be exaggerating, but I think that that is part of it, is that he became sort of like, oh, if we need to put a – you know, quote, if your network, exa- we need to have a black writer on, well, there's Baldwin, right? We'll put him on because we know. Who he so is. that's what it was. He was, that was, that's what he's talking about when he was saying that they I wanted think so. him to I, be the that's voice. That's my interpretation okay. is that he didn't want to be viewed as sort of this, 
you know, he's our black writer guy that we can trot out when we need to show that we have a black writer kind of thing. When he, when they're in the film, when they're talking, when they're showing all the the thing that stuck out at me uh, for me was the that were the number of shots of the sky and yeah. nondescript places with the sky, and they obviously interspersed everything from well, beach shots. Although I guess that wasn't really the sky, but like you know the water. But there were a lot of urban shots and even suburban shots that were contemporary and older. And I and I at first I was like. Lower the camera. <laughs> I want to. I want to see what you're taking. I want to see. Where are you? Like, what are you telling me? Because I. Because there were so many. You couldn't take your eyes. You couldn't. I wanted to close my eyes and listen, or look at the screen. And I felt like if I did both, I was going to lose one of them. Like I was losing the yeah. message they were sending in the shots they were taking. And then I was hearing the message. And I mean, the vast majority of the time it worked. But I actually really wanted to concentrate more on one or the other. But I really was taken away take, blown away by the sky shots and i couldn't figure out why they were doing that at one point i started you know i started tearing up and it was when they did the buy they were doing the swamp shots and uh it was after somebody died i don't remember which one but i but they the but they were but even in the swamp it was a sky shot it were all these they were all these shots of the sky so I'm it's curious, the horizon. that's what i'm wondering is it is it that it's is it's the lifting horizon. eyes to the sky or for me, I always saw it as like, you have to keep pushing forward and looking forward so that you don't get bogged down in the swamp or you don't get pulled away in the currents of this fast pace and the hatred and everything. So it was, how do you find beauty in such complete and utter, just like hatred and ugliness? And you can focus, focus on that, on nature. Up. Don't, don't, don't look on what, don't look at what's actually happening. Just look, look up. up. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's, that, that, that kind of connects with what I saw too. Cause it, may, cause it, it seemed really difficult to, I mean, you know, a few of them, it was easy what they were going for. They were showing Ferguson or they were showing things that were, you know, the actual a- a- actions. I mean, and then all the films footage, um, and the Charlton Heston's, the, I, I, I feel like Jim. I feel like you could. I'd love to hear you kind of t- t- uh, contemporize well, some of those Heston different shots. Was, a, was actually, uh, I don't know if you know this, but my brother Tom actually wrote a book about the '63 March on Washington. Charlton Heston was actually a very active participant in helping to organize a number. Well, that's of what I was asking. Active- so he was on that TV show with Harry Belafonte and right. whatever all those that other was, huge that, names. That TV, particularly TV show, was related to. The 19, August 1963 March on Washington. And what did Heston say? Well, no, Heston was a huge uh, supporter of that at that time. I, notwithstanding his later involvement with when the did NRA. He flip? Yeah, it was like for my cold dead hands. <laughs> exactly. That's all. And these are, I mean, I assume he's you know, a Republican. Hypothetically, hypothetically, one could be a strong gun rights supporter and still be a strong civil rights sure. supporter. Sure, sure. Very so, hypothetically. No, John. <laughs> very hypothetically. Well, it's very easy to be a strong gun supporter and a civil rights, you know, activist as long as you're not brown. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or from a major urban area. Yeah. To be fair, in the 1960s, one of the big proponents of uh, gun rights was the Black Panther Party. Well, yeah. And you, there's no way in hell I could walk around in an open carry in Philadelphia and not get my head blown off. Even though it's my right. Exactly. So Heston. So Heston. So Heston. Tom was actually doing interviewed wor- Heston for his book. He was a huge wow. supporter of that. He was. He was a big. He was a influential person in getting a number of uh, Hollywood people involved in the march. Uh, of course, Harry Belafonte. 
I mean, you know, you have a different people on there. Harry Belafonte's whole uh, life, uh, in addition to his performing, he's hugely involved in uh, activist uh, efforts throughout his entire um, life. He's uh, he is uh, uh, you know has a long history of. Uh, of very profound activism in addition to his uh his performance. Well, I mean they didn't in the in the documentary they didn't they didn't avoid the names because obviously they showed each one of the person each one of the stars at that table showed their name and then they chose to have Belafonte be the be the excerpt that they included. But it was like you're watching that and going, "Wow, that is I mean that that is a powerhouse round table they had with a bunch of coffee in front of them on a coffee table." But it was a uh, but I I didn't I was I was surprised to see Heston. I didn't understand that he was that uh, actively involved. Yeah, no, no, that's true. People don't realize that. And, um, I mean, uh, you know, I, like I said, notwithstanding his later involvement in the NRA, I don't know if he was involved in the NRA in 1963, but notwithstanding that, he was very deeply involved, in, at least in that 1963 march. The other thing I wanted to ask you guys about was, it's a, it's a, I noticed that it was a, a Magnolia production. I thought it was an Amazon Studios production, but it's Magnolia, and Amazon's just releasing it, I take it. So it was it was originally done no, just no, as a... I think Amazon's just streaming it. Uh, I, don't think I mean, streaming it, was, it yeah. It was released in the theaters. So it was released by them. Who? So who who is the documentarian? Oh, Heinz. Heinz, Heinz, Heinz. It's Raoul Peck. Oh, I know the name. That's all I know. Okay, so fill me in. So this is a perfect example about like the stories that aren't as familiar. And so the thing that really stuck out for me is when Baldwin says, I'm very versed in your culture and you know nothing about mine. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. Very telling phrase, yes. Yes. And so, you know, growing up I knew Breakfast Club and Sixteen yep. Candles, et cetera, et cetera. But if I ask people, have you seen Love and Basketball or Love Jones or Vampire in Brooklyn or Rob, they're crickets. So Raul yeah. Peck is an incredible um, filmmaker that I totally fangirl over. He did the film. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like it. He, he did the um, film about Patrice Lumumba. Oh, and Lumumba. Lumumba. Yes. Okay. And he also did the film that I felt was robbed about the Rwandan genocide sometimes in April, which is what I never Idris saw Elba. I have not seen it. Oh, it's so so sometimes in April and Hotel Rwanda came out at the same like at the same time. And, yeah. And Hotel Rwanda was very much for me and I saw both of them was like the Disney sanitized version. And sometimes in April was not. <laughs> Interesting because I thought I did see Hotel Rwanda. I really thought uh Speaking of Rob, I thought Don Cheadle was robbed in Hotel Rwanda. I thought he was quite good. I love Don Cheadle. Oh, yeah, he's funny. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sometimes in April. We'll have to put that on the list here. Sometimes yeah, in I April. Yeah, I got to say, I got to say, now you're giving me a whole list. I want to, I, I think we should, that's where we should, that's where we should go next. Yeah. We should just, I think, we Nikki, should do a, you should give watch. Heinz a list of movies to watch. Yeah, hello. I'll put it on the website. I, I want to watch all of them systematically. Well, we should definitely put it on the website. So, Nikki, I also have to admit that I've never heard of Raul Peck. I'm also not as um, versed as you all are in film. Was he a motivator for you when you decided you wanted to go into... Because you changed gears. You started out thinking I you did. wanted to go to med school and then yes. you were... I was pre-med, but I was always a writer. And I always did like 
arts. I was a theater girl. Shocker. Okay, so you always had that in you. Shocker. I was wondering if there was yeah, like I sang. What and... changed? What helped you decide to move to New York and grad school? And it was the kind of thing that I was like, I can do film, sun up and sundown, and not be exhausted by it. Like every single time, it's something new. And it's my take on it. And honestly, I wanted to tell my stories so that it wasn't as, you know, it's really hard when you're inundated with all the, you know, the pain and the disenfranchisement, which is fine if I'm telling it because I still feel like I'm showing the humanity of it. And it's not trauma porn. Trauma porn. Like Detroit or, God, there's just so many movies. Like, Orange is the New Black, I have a big issue with because I feel like it's trauma porn. So that's something that's really, you know, it's like, it's okay to, you know, talk about things that are heavy and important, but I want to make sure that it's, that the focus of it is still the humanity of the subjects. And it's not, you know, geared towards, you know, guilt or someone's version of how they think this person should be. So how do you balance that? I try to make sure that I don't just focus on my culture, but I learn about everyone's. I went through this whole like Southeast Asian phase where I was only reading novels and books and watching, you know, Indian films like in books by authors, Vikram Seth, A Suitable Boy, and um, Adruthri Roy, The God of Small Things. Like just making sure that my lens is as varied and open as possible so that I don't become the same person that I accuse other people of being. So I can't be all like throwing shade, like, ugh, I can't believe you've never seen Love Jones. If, you know, if I'm talking to one of my Indian girlfriends and she's like, oh, have you ever seen Lagan? And I'm like, Rrr. but I have seen Lagan. Actually, it's one of Ansamani's favorite movies <laughs> because it's this fantastic musical and it's three hours long and it just shows the pageantry and the beauty of Desi Indian culture. So the decision to do that the decision to take a deep dive into a particular other culture is necessarily tied to excluding certain pop culture things that maybe are flooding over you, just like they're flooding over the rest of us that, you know, keeps you, keeps most people from, from doing that. Right. I want to hear how someone talks about their own culture. I want to read that for myself versus someone else's interpretation of it. So Salman Rushdie, Midnight's Children, I want to hear and read his words and how he describes his culture and Gael Garcia um, Marquez, like how he talks about, you know, his life and the poetry and that hygiene and how, you know, they talk about Chinese culture and, you know, Amy Tan. So I'm interested in how people describe the facets and the nuances of their cultural identities. And I'm interested in it because, you know, I love learning and Ben Okri and how he describes the Nigerian experience and mysticism, because these are all things that are fascinating to me. And I'm interested because in a way I'm like, if I show more interest, then maybe other people will start picking up and becoming, you know, and increase their scope and they'll become more interested in it also. Through some kind of through through some kind of like cultural replication, just by being out there, you having the conversations, and then you initiate them, and others pick up on it, and it builds from there. Exactly. So, Nikki, what would you say? Let's say, in all sincerity, a white filmmaker or or, or a aspiring white filmmaker, 
came to you and asked for advice, what would you say to them? Is it possible for them to take the same approach to try to immerse themselves in other cultures and be open My to My first this? question would, would be, do you have any black friends? Okay. Like friends. Say they do. Say Just say for the sake of argument, they do. And so I would say, what do you feel you bring to this story that that black friend can't? But, okay, but are you saying that there's no space at all for – I mean, I'm not saying – so you're saying is do they uh, – if they come to you and they want to tell a story that's related to primarily focused on people of color or are you telling them – don't make films at all. We have enough of you people to make films. Or what are you saying? I'm not. I'm not. I'm sure. saying that I'm a little reticent to know what draws you to that particular story. Okay. Well, what if like it, how inclusive? I, I how inclusive yeah. is your crew? Yeah. Um, right. Who's writing it? Like, what's your tie? What's your foothold in okay. this story? Why do you feel so drawn? And to I wasn't it? thinking of a particular story. I was just thinking sort of as a general. Thing. Not that they came to you and said, I want to talk about this story as much as they, they're interested in making films, but they want to do it in a way that's as inclusive as possible. Straight out of Compton. That film, you know, about NWA's rise, directed by a white person, written by white young, young screenwriters. So what does a 20-something or a 30-something-year-old white woman know about that culture like you can't tell me that you grew up listening to nwa i clearly remember my brother getting in trouble for blasting it in the house well i have to tell you i know there were a lot of white teenage boys that used to listen to nwa simply because probably for the simple reason that it would piss their parents off tremendously that they were listening to that i'm not sure they understood in any sense what that was really about i mean they knew what the words were and they knew that they that was that was a way to piss off their parents. But I do think there's a lot of white teenage boys who did listen to N.W.A. Now. Mm, I think even back then. In the 90s? Yeah. I mean, if I mean, compared to not I mean, not like other things, but I think there was probably a few. But it was I mean, or some. But it was I mean, they were popular. <laughs> they were popular. And I think, again, I think it's more a matter of. For a certain element of the culture, it's uh, a way of showing, uh, you know, it's a way of expressing sort of hostility to your parents or to your authorities that you're embracing this because they know it's very upsetting to their to them. But I don't know that it yeah, meant yeah, they yeah. were truly embracing the experience or trying to understand the experience of what the people who were making that music were where they were yeah, coming. like you can't tell me that some little kid from like the main line is going to understand. Like, oh no, no, I I agree. I don't think they were understanding it. I do think they they were listening to it just because they knew it was it was a quote shocking thing to be listening to or something like that. I think that I think there's a way in which, and I'm not an expert on this, but I'm, I'm there's a way in which you could probably talk about non-white specifically cultural things are incorporated in for the simple reason that doing so has the commercial potential of being shocking. Uh, you know, there, the, to some extent, the early part of rock and roll was about the fact that it was so upsetting, you know, that it separated the kids from their parents because the parents found it so upsetting. And what did they do for early part of rock and roll was a lot of it was to 
uh, incorporate uh, elements of what, you know, at the time was called race music and now we call rhythm and blues, which mean it was music by black artists that white artists. It was music. actually appropriation. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. But my point is, I think that's what a lot of times what happens is that is that uh, the 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 cultural uh, for the you know the white majority in the United States the cultural points that are become these points of inflection are frequently stuff that are borrowed or appropriated if probably a better word from uh, uh, other cultures because it has an added element of uh, shock value to a lot of people. Because all the stories have already been told and you just need to have a different group. <laughs> well, no, just because, all, look, the, There are no new stories. Of, this is Peggy's of, old A lot line. of, no, a lot of what, <laughs> a lot of, look, a lot of stuff about culture is, you know, like, for example, you can talk about, just as a totally different example, punk, when it came out, what was punk about? It was really about what can we do Music is so everybody is so jaded with this music. What can we do that will upset people because they're not upset by just playing old rock and roll anymore? So let's do something new that's shocking that will upset. A lot of that happens. You know what people do art. Let's find out some art thing that we can do that can upset people. Now I'm I'm not suggesting it's all reducible yeah, yeah, yeah. to that, but no, that's certainly it. part of it. And particularly when you talk about what young people like to listen to in the way of music or watch in the way of movies and television, I mean, there's definitely a, a, a fairly universal attraction when you're young, when you're that young, to find something that, oh, my God, my parents would hate this. So let's, I'm going so to So in that case, you could say, all right, so then there should be kids rushing out to go see Halle Grima Sankofa because that's upsetting. Or, you know, let's... Let's go see Push Babies or let's like you can do protests that way. Sure. But that's not what's being well, done. That's mostly doing. people are fetishizing. Right. And that's my issue. Right. Like, I don't think that there aren't s- stories that can be told well if they're outside of your culture. But you're going to have to prove to me that you're not fetishizing. So yet. is that Hollywood doing that? Who's doing that, Nikki? Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> I was actually thinking more totally. of a question of not so much if you're trying to tell a story – I mean, I think, for example, it makes sense to me to say that if there's a story out there that is, you know, a story that uh, resonates with the black experience or the gay experience, that people who are that that storytellers, that filmmakers who have that background are better placed to tell those stories. I was thinking more from the sense of if you're a white filmmaker and you're trying to make not particularly a story that you're not particularly focused on those stories. You're focused on other stories. But at the same time, you want to be inclusive and sensitive to the fact that you don't want it to be uh, a a film that's a white film with a token black person or a token gay person in it, but you want it to be a white film, but that also represents the true diversity of the culture we live in. That, I guess, was more what my question was directed toward. How would you, what do you say to them about that? You have to diversify your writer's room. Yeah. You have to have producers. You have to have people in front and behind the camera because it's only if you're looking out at a sea of faces that are reflective of America, you're like, ooh, do I really want to write this story? Do I really want to say this line? Is this really going to be representative of the people that I'm surrounding myself with? 
point in case Game of Thrones, huge fan of that show. You know, the showrunners wanted to, you know, they pitched a new show called The Confederate. Mm. If slavery hadn't ended. Yeah, I heard about that. And there was a huge uproar. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you're not going to have me watch a film or a television series that, you know, pontificates on if slavery hadn't ended. I don't need to fucking see that shit. (laughs) I don't need to see it, especially as told by two white men. Right. Because invariably for me, I'm like, how are the black women going to be portrayed? Who's going to get brutalized? Yeah. If one, well, if I can't believe come, you could if, watch Game of Thrones. If one of them had come with a partner, a black oh, woman partner, and said, we wanted to do the show, would you look at the approach? Oh, they did. There were two black showrunners on board with uh, it, and it's still not enough for me. Okay. I'd, you know, And it could just be like, everyone's like, you just wait to see it. I'm like, mm, yeah, or, or not. How do you keep up on all this stuff? You have two small children, a full-time job. How do you do? And you go to bed at nine in the at night. I'm amazed. I feel like I know nothing. What do I What do I spend my time doing? My kids go to bed early. I wake up early. I'm a voracious reader and I'm obsessive. All these things rolled into a nutball. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty much like. I'm. I'm curious about Are everything. Are you describing yourself as a nutball? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. How old are your children, if I may? Ask? Five and twenty months. I'm a five-year-old. Wow, so they are really. Yeah. You're really in the. Yeah. You're really in the starter stage. Oh yeah. As it is. Bags under my eyes. I looked so much younger when Bennett first came. <laughs> hey, we all did. Hey, are you doing any movie making now? What's your What's that happening? I'm writing now. I finished a one-act play, and I wrote a feature um, that I have to do a like a, a major revision on. And do you, are you finding, it's hard to get funded. Is that right? That's one of the... It's incredibly hard to get funded. The same people get funded over and over again. And that's another thing that's also really hard to get, you know, different stories out there told. It's like, nobody's trying to fund my brown voice. Not yet. And because I am, I still keep trying. You do. Trying you keep I'm just applying for obsessive. things. And... Yeah. Yeah. Hoping. Because that's ultimately what you... Yeah. Like I've gotten, you know, Princess Grace funding. Exactly. Princess Grace funding. I've gotten Princess Grace funding, which allows me to, you know, it gives me access to apply for other grant funding along that. There's screenwriting competitions. I'm sorry, what did you say? You get what kind of funding? Um, in grad school, I got uh, a Princess Grace Award. What is a Princess Grace Award? It is by Princess Grace of Monaco. They set oh, really? Up. So it's like a legacy from Grace Kelly? Yes. Yes. Oh, and um, for theater, film, choreography, playwrights, and um, Carrie, Lin-Manuel, um, Leslie Odom, they're all Princess Grace recipients, um, Heidi Simon, you know, there's a big old long list of folks that the Princess Grace Foundation has believed in and funded their and you applied for that, or so. how did you get that awarded? I did. I applied for it, and I nice. they, saw, they saw something in me 10 years Belated ago. Belated congratulations. Yeah. So now I'm like, what, is there a, are there any films? Are there any films out now, Nikki, that uh, are, you know, that are in theaters now that you're particularly interested in or have particularly recommendations for? I can't get enough of Black Panther. I'm a huge comic book nerd. 
And Black Panther just, you know, I saw it twice in the theater. We're going to own it. As in you're going to buy the DVD. Oh, yeah. Okay. Not as in you're actually going to buy the rights to the film. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a struggling artist. (laughs) Would you have... uh... Would you have made that – would you have done anything differently with that movie if you'd made it? Absolutely not. Okay. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. It's oh, – it was. they had do me at the door the, Do you go see all the comic book movies? I do. Okay. So you've seen the Avengers – The Infinity, Infinity War, War I haven't seen yet just because I do have okay. the two small kids. But it's – yeah. Deadpool 2, okay. can't wait to go see it. Now, how old will you – Will the kids be before you take them to your uh, movie in the theater? Have you already taken my youngest, my oldest one? She's a little skittish. Okay, I couldn't get her to watch Moana because the, the the little troll things and the and the cave like they freaked her out. She has all the feelings, so I'm not going to spend seven fifty on her until I know she can sit through the whole damn thing without putting her head in my armpit <laughs> hey that happened to uh, jessica too she took her little ethan to i think moana and he freaked out they had to leave freaked out <laughs> freaked out freaked out. but she loves Coraline. go figure loves it i've never seen Coraline. oh i love Coraline. it's creepy i love it but yeah but she they was... do watch i assume i assume the five-year-old watches i assume the five-year-old watches dvds at home um she watches kiriku which is this great little um, cartoon. You know, it's a little story about this little uh, kid from Senegal. And she also watches The Emperor's New Clothes. Those are like her two favorites. Uh, I try to make sure that I'm very hard on what she views because representation is really important and it's pervasive and it starts early. So she is not allowed to watch anything that's Barbie or that shows girls as they can only be princesses and they need to be rescued and all that stuff. Like I want to make sure that if it is a, a little girl character in it, that she's strong. And if she's strong and Brown, then that's a freaking plus. If not, then she can only watch Sesame Street. Will you let her watch Anne of <laughs> Green Gables? My favorite. She's strong. You know, <laughs> she is strong. Well, not she, yet. Jenna wouldn't be able to sit through all that. Right. I love Anna Green Gables. Okay, eventually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, once she has a strong, like, it makes me really happy that Jenna wakes up in the morning and the thing that she says is that she loves her beautiful brown skin. Like, that's, that's awesome. Because there are also other girls that are her age that, you know, they're like, I wish I had blonde hair and I wish my hair was flowy and I wish my skin was lighter and I'm not beautiful because all they see on television is not themselves. So is she learning Portuguese? Yeah. She is. She's learning Portuguese. She's learning Susu. She's learning Creole. She hears like 10 languages in the house. She gets shy about it though. When Safi starts speaking in Susu, then Jennifer speaks more because she can't be outdone by the little munchkin. (laughs) Competition is always good. (laughs) By the little sassy one. Competition is always good. So Nikki, what's, uh, is there something that you that we could see that you've done that's out there that we could uh, that's available for people that you've worked on? Yes, you can see my documentary "Open Wound" on Quali TV. It's a streaming service. Is it Q U A L I TV? 
K-W-E-L-I. There you go. I was not even close. <laughs> K-W-E-L-I. <laughs> Good All try, right. though, Jim. Well, you, you tried. Know. It's better than me. All right. You actually made be, the effort. Like to be I, was gonna, I was just going to start that Googling. That's going to be uh, on the uh, current event quiz. Open wound. Open wound. Yes. Open you wound can stream singular. it. You Is can this stream a documentary? It. Yes. Do you have a website, Nikki? Um, the website is. I don't want we're to gonna suck put, up the bandwidth. Well, we're gonna we're gonna you send us the stuff. We'll post it on our website so that if anybody, any of the twelve people that listen to this, uh, <laughs> want to, uh, check out your website or now and your film, we'll we'll give them the information of where to go look for it. Q or K W E L I dot TV. And then I can search for my film, but you can string it. So how do you get it on there? How did you get Gosh, it on there? I can't even remember. Website. Where? It was like someone had emailed me. That's and okay. was like, oh, you know, do you want to? She has two yeah. small children. She's lucky if she can remember her name, you know? That's what I was going to ask you. Now. I was going to ask you what your, what your current project is, but I think I know. <laughs> what is your current project? I, um, I just finished my run act. Yeah, I think John's referring to the kids. Oh, to the kids. Oh, no. I oh, yeah, can't no, imagine. Right Nikki, I've I never it, met Jim. you. Yes, that's what I was shooting this for. This morning, but I can't imagine you're not working on something based on this. Yeah. Yeah. When the little, I was going to say, when the little fuckers go to sleep, that's when I can, like, try to write. And you don't, you <laughs> What's don't actually your... <laughs> call them little fuckers. Face, right, Nikki? No, oh, you God, don't say, no. Hey, little God, fucker no. one, little fucker two. No, one. no, they're my darlings and my loves. <laughs> So you're not gonna it's let them listen to this. You're not voice. gonna let them listen to this no. episode of the podcast that no. we're on.